this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with my old friend Samantha Power, former United States Ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama, and now President Biden's new nominee to oversee the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID arguably the world's most important source of foreign and humanitarian aid around the world. To leave Ambassador Power's bio at that, however, would be to toss out some of the most interesting parts of her story. In a life that began in Dublin, Ireland, and included immigrating to the United States at the age of nine with her mother and brother, a Pulitzer Prize for her first book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, and a role as a young but influential foreign policy advisor to a rising political star named Barack Obama. Luckily, Sam herself has written about all this with bracing honesty and limpid clarity in her recent memoir, The Education of an Idealist. So why not just go straight to the source of the matter and get this conversation going? Hello there, Sam. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your totally insane schedule to sit down and talk with me. Great to see you. Wonderful to see you. Am I right that if things proceed well in your confirmation process in Congress, and there was some good news just this morning, this could be your last interview in a non-official capacity for quite some time? <laughs> I better say everything that's on my mind right now, right here, before I get scripted. Uh, no, it's, it is the case that this could well be my last interview, John, so no pressure. It is a before and after. I know just from reading in the book about how you had to prepare for your confirmation hearing during the Obama administration, and a lot of things come into play. Your days as a free citizen are not quite the same. So let's go to the book. The Education of an Idealist is a memoir, and I, I loved it, I want to say. I really did, and I've been living in it these last days, and it's a remarkable journey. So it's a memoir, and in some senses, since it begins at the very beginning of your life, it's also an autobiography. So it's back to the beginning where I'd like to start us off, which leads us back to Dublin at the very start of the 1970s, where you were born. And to me, this part of the story is above all about your father. He was a completely charismatic, memorable, brilliant, and troubled man who shone through those early years for you as a beacon, and later, heartbreakingly, as a shadow. Would you tell us a bit about him and about the pub Hardigans that was his church and castle and about how this led uh, to you and your mom and your brother immigrating without him to America, to Pittsburgh, when you were nine? Thanks, John. That's a great way to put it, from a beacon to a shadow. And I think one of the things that I tried to do in the education of an idealist is to open up parts of myself and my life, and I suppose my career as well, but mainly my life, that would be resonant for readers who didn't give a damn about <laughs> the United Nations or American foreign policy, but uh, who themselves may have struggled uh, in the context of a broken marriage or in the context of addiction and so forth. And and my dad was the one man to sweep my mother, Vera Delaney, off her feet. Tall, gorgeous, scratch golfer, piano player, photographic memory, full of charisma and judgment about all things, raconteur, and drinker. Uh, drinker initially in the context of a city filled with drinkers, Dublin, Ireland, and a pub certainly filled with regulars where I spent much of my childhood, my weekends after school, I'd get picked up at school and would go hang out in the basement of the pub and read my mystery novels and drink my Fanta and my Tato's 
and wait for my dad to finish sounding off on the latest sporting events or, or political news. But over time, and who can ever make sense of addiction and when it takes its most uh, severe and devastating turn, but over time, the kind of run-of-the-mill Dublin pub-going life began to interfere with career, with family. I honestly, even to this day, and many therapists have tried to talk me out of this, I don't recall it really interfering, except in a deep structural sense, with my dad's parenting of me. And when I say structural sense, in the sense that him drinking drove my mother to leave the marriage and then ultimately to leave the country. And so in a sense, uh, the drinking massively disrupted my relationship with my dad in, in the most profound ways. But while we were in Ireland and I was still very much in his midst, my mother was off playing uh, competitive squash and getting her medical degree and passionate about her patients and her studies. And he really spent a huge amount of time raising me. And in a way, the fact as he became more dilettantish and more mm -hmm. of a pub goer than a dentist, which had been his profession, the more time he had for me and for me to be Robin to his Batman. So, again, it's a dark story in silhouette about a child spending too much time in the basement of a pub where the smells weren't great and the <laughs> and the the chatter upstairs wasn't always fit for a child but as you know if you're a child just the greatest measure of a parent in some ways is are they there and and right. do they see you in what is becoming your essence and I, I certainly had that with my dad but the drink did interfere and my mother did ultimately decide that she wanted to split up for my father. And in Ireland at the time, it's hard to remember this now, but there was no divorce. Of course, there was no abortion. There was barely access to contraception. It was very dominated in culture as well as in government, public life by the church. Almost no women working like your mother either, I, I, I assume. Yeah, the judgment on my mother by her peers and by the courts in wanting to split with my father in the first place and then, God forbid, to move to America is where she could pursue professional opportunities as a physician, as a kidney doctor. This was not greeted uh, warmly or as if this was the equitable thing to do, but she did litigate it and she did win in the end because of my dad's drinking. I think people recognized that probably him raising us alone would not work and it was me and my younger brother. So in 1979, I was nine. Uh, she got on an airplane with me and my younger brother and brought us, as you mentioned, to Pittsburgh, where my love of sports was born because it was the city <laughs> city of champions. This, uh, it was a was, great time for the for the Pirates back then. It, that was yeah, their, back their heyday. Then, yeah. Back then, yeah, it's been a while. But, but um, Willie Stargell and Dave Parker yep. and Omar Moreno. And so I immersed myself in this new sport of, of baseball, yeah. the closest approximation to which was rounders, a, a kind of weird baseball. <laughs> Baseball, cricket amalgamation, but um, and that was and sports became my my way of fitting in. It, it's something to this day. And mm -hmm. male-dominated institutions comes in handy. I still have a a kind of obscene amount of knowledge about obscure baseball and and basketball and football statistics and facts that are a good currency in in Washington. The day that you that you and I met many years ago, we were seated next to each other at the wedding of Philip Gurevich and Larissa McFarquhar. And I remember you had just come from throwing the first, the opening day pitch at the Red Sox, which was the greatest thing that had ever happened. I was, I still remember it. I still remember the excitement of you telling that story. It was incredible. So, so I'm, let me say a couple of things. One, it doesn't surprise me that that, that I was regaling you with that story because at that point, my romantic life was not <laughs> prospering. So I thought that, that that would be the equivalent of my wedding in the sense. And so I invited people as if it was my wedding to Fenway Park Fantastic. for that and then proceeded to throw it into the dirt. <laughs> All right. To go back to more serious, serious matters <laughs> for the moment. One thing I will say that I never doubted, and I, I don't think you ever did, through all the ups and downs and the pain was your father loved you. His love for you seemed so strong, even if it wasn't enough to change what he was able to do in his life. And that, as you have gone on in your life and achieved what you've achieved, it always seems to me that that has to be a, a base, an important base of some kind all, all along. So I guess that leads me to the question, 
as a writer who has myself who's sometimes written about personal difficult things, what was it like for you, a journalist and yourself, to write about your father in public and your childhood in this way for the first time? Um, well, first, on the question of love and confidence and, and mm. worth, right, which a lot of us humans grapple with over time. And as parents, uh, now I think a lot about in the context of my own kids. I think what's really hard about addiction, John, is that a child almost can't help but believe that if they were truly lovable and worth it, that it would be instantiated in the loved one giving up renouncing this mm -hmm. demon. And so actually it's really, you're, there's no question that what you say is true and that he loved with every fiber of his being, me and my, and my brother, and, and in many ways projected that. But I think the shadow that you alluded to earlier that so many people live under who grapple with addiction is you just kind of can't help but feel as a kid that if you were more lovable or more worth it, that they would have been able to snap yeah. out of it. And because you don't understand what addiction is, you only understand a parent who isn't what you need them to be fully, right? Which is So there. it creates this terrible hole that it's you a, can't fill. Yeah. You, and, and it shows mm -hmm. up in all kinds of damaging ways, I think, mm -hmm. just in, in terms of striving to fill that elsewhere and maybe overachieving. I mean, there's a lot of social science on, there is. Uh, on <laughs> overachievement. And it's so maybe, you know, I'd like to think it came out of that foundation of confidence and love and worth, but maybe it was desperation, right, to be it worth a, it. And, it takes a whole lot of different things. Let's put it yeah, that way. No doubt. But as I got older, certainly the longings you have all kinds of different longings. You know, you meet the guy you go on to marry and you wish you could introduce him. And then in my case, because my dad had such a sharp wit, I'm terrified at what that would have looked like and, <laughs> and uh, how that conversation would have gone. But particularly in getting into current events and world affairs, just remembering my father at the pub with a stack of newspapers, Irish and English, and just sounding off on politics. But it remains, I mean, to this day, weirdly raw and heartbreaking, mm -hmm. you know, that just that person's not around just to talk with and to share the day's news and opinions with. And so it just, it never really goes away. You evoke that beautifully and so honestly in the book, in the midst of all the, quote, larger themes that you are also attending to in the world. And the truth is these things go together. They're inseparable, you know, at some level. So on the other side of that, whole, if you will, that thing you could not control or save. All along, there's your mom, a doctor, which was extraordinary how she handled her career in that place at that time and afterwards. By your side, she's the person you say that you admire most in the world. And after reading the book, I can see why. And then her second husband, uh, your stepfather, Eddie, who he's my kind of fellow. I mean, I have to say, he seems, talk about a soulful character with a wonderful mind and a great wit. He really comes across as well as somebody, they're sort of your guiding angels as this goes through. And how have those two shaped your life, would you say? Well, I think my mother's kind of innate, sky's the limit reflex on everything is just something that I was lucky to be witness to, whether I've internalized it fully, I don't know. But for her to bust out and ignore people who said girls didn't do science in Ireland in those days and pursue her dream of becoming a physician and then to bust out and come to America and run away with this Irishman, Eddie, my now stepfather, and just following her heart, her gut, her, her sense of smell. And I mean, I think it's just a, an infectious spirit. I hope my daughter, Rian, who's eight, you know, if she has even just a fraction of my mother's intrepid way of taking risks and not, not dumb risks, but hard risks. And then the second thing about her is she's just the most empathetic person I've ever known. So her just living in a household where the patients that she was caring for, she's a transplant physician, the people that she was counseling on transplants, they were like characters 
around the dinner mm-hmm. table. You know, I knew their love lives and I knew how many kids they had and I knew what their grandson had just done in a sporting event. I mean, just the way she listened and mined the details of these lives from her patients. Uh, Great for a storyteller also to know all that. Right. Exactly. And so for me to get a word in edgewise, first of all, I had to know how to tell a story, but also the character portraits just orally, which so many Irish people are are good at. But she and Eddie, both that gift was something that definitely has informed how I try to tell the story on the page at the very least. I do want to come back, though, because you had asked, what was it like going back over all of this as a reporter to one's own story? Mm -hmm. And, And you have more experience doing this than I do. But in a way, it just gave me an excuse. I think that because my dad died when I was 14 of the drink and in a way that surprised me and because my mother has felt a lot of guilt about that and because I love my mother so much and was so grateful that she not only was a fantastic, empathetic, interesting human being, but also was alive, right? When you lose a parent, you're so grateful. And I right. certainly had that kind of smell the the roses view of her and Eddie throughout my childhood, just like, phew, like I still have, mm-hmm. so lucky to still have two parents in a sense. But by virtue of that, I was very protective of her. And the last thing I wanted to do is go back and ask questions about my dad. And honestly, had I not written the memoir and decided that there was no way to tell the story of my future self in the world and doing human rights and this and that without unpacking my earlier life, I never would have had the excuse to go back and ask those questions. And I never would have done it because Mm -hmm. I would have thought that the risk that sort of hurting her, unsettling her in some fashion was too great. And so Mm -hmm. it actually just allowed me to kind of take my reporter notebook out and I moved into that burrowing headspace that one has when one's digging into any investigation. And so I learned a lot that's on the page there. I did not know before I started writing the memoir, including the circumstances behind his demise and, you know, her Mm. logic, including some of the details around litigating it and going to the court and how she was able to get custody of a kid in Ireland in 1979. So I have it and now I have it to give my kids and to give my brother and right. and she's glad too. And now knowing it, it would be almost impossible to imagine not knowing it or how you got through without knowing it. Uh, crazy. Yeah. I know. Um, dodging, dodging it. So then going forward after coming to America from Yale to Washington to Bosnia, where you were a reporter, obviously during the horrible war there and genocide there, back to Harvard Law, and eventually back to Washington as a young foreign policy advisor to an equally young political star named Barack Obama. You would have a series of influential mentors and friends in the foreign policy and human rights community. And people like Mort Abramovitz, the late Fred Clooney, obviously an incredibly important person to you, Laura Pitter, John Pendergast, who who I've met and is a remarkable person. Richard Holbrook, I mean, a, a giant, obviously, in the realm. Susan Rice and Obama himself. I'm just interested what these relationships involving this, I guess, the younger Samantha power might tell the older Samantha about the nature of wisdom and experience. <laughs> you know, in certain cases, each, what each person somehow having a different angle on that. And if it's something you feel very aware of carrying around with you. Well, I think in some sense, when you're a newcomer with no kind of pre-existing connections, right, as an an immigrant family necessarily would be, and we were a very fortunate one speaking English and being welcomed and not being greeted with any of the old hostility that once greeted Irish people and that currently greets people, you know, Muslim Americans and others who've come to this country. So we, we were very lucky but also my mother's profession, very different than my own. And so you're you're sort of tabula rasa in this world and in necessity is the mother of invention, I suppose. And so I, I probably, the combination of having lost my father and probably being on a perennial quest for father figures, even though I was so lucky to have Eddie, this storyteller and poet and comic and incredibly loving second father in my life, I still 
I think that whole probably did manifest itself in that kind of craving for mentors. And in the foreign policy world, irrespective of whether I'd lost a father or mother, the mentor possibilities were mainly male. Uh, so it was the case that if you were looking for guidance and counsel and instruction about how to be in this new world, the options were older white males by and large. And I think what the list, though, of people, including people like Susan Rice, who's now running Joe Biden's domestic agenda and ran uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy for his second term and was UN ambassador, what they all have in common is actually a term I, I first heard from Susan when I was Obama's UN advisor and she was at the UN as ambassador. And that is, I have this in the book, but GSD, this acronym, the get shit done. Each of the people that you mentioned they just have this abiding practicality, which I know sounds kind of run of the mill. Like surely if you're trying to get things done in the world, you should be so focused on outcomes. And yet in Washington, there's just always been a very expressive component to how people go about their business, you know, wanting to give great speeches and now to go viral and to do this and that. And and just the Morta Bromowitzes and the Richard Holworks and Fred Cooney, this engineer who, you know, brought water and electricity to Sarajevo at the height of the siege. I mean, the, the people who influenced me most in my early 20s were just people so focused on what actually changed by virtue of what you tried to do. And I think that, again, is the spirit that I now in hoping to lead USAID that's one of the most can-do agencies there is in providing humanitarian assistance and trying to support anti-corruption work and provide fertilizer that is drought resistant. And it's, it's such a problem-solving culture. And it's kind of thrilling to think, okay, how do you lift that up? How do you do more of it? How do you do it against the backdrop of China, which is providing a lot as well, but in very different ways? And so I, I feel there's a kind of nice and it, like the life as it was lived for all of us is so staggered and, you know, all over the place really yeah, in my case. And yet when I look back to those early years in Sarajevo, watching Fred Cooney trying to figure out how to tap into these 16th century wells so as to find an organic water source, so as to deprive the Bosnian Serbs of the weapon of siege where they were basically using food and water and electricity as a means of pressing the Bosnians to give up on having a country of their own, you know, now to have the chance to sort of take those ideas and bring this GSD, this get shit done mindset to this moment in our history at the time of COVID. And, it, you know, it's such a national emergency, an international emergency at once. And so I wish a lot of those guys were around to talk to. And, and because the, the council on one level is is timeless because the, the places are so different. I mean, Holbrook was in Vietnam and in Bosnia and Mort was at the Thai-Cambodian border and in Turkey, the Turkish-Iraqi border, and Fred was in Sarajevo and Kurdistan. And But the nature of the questions that you bring mm -hmm. to a fresh set of facts, I think there is a, some timelessness at least to those questions. And it'd be great to have that kitchen cabinet. <laughs> That's good mentoring. I also love the sort of humane irony of the fact that in the education of an idealist, it is the GSD part that gradually grows and grows. You know, one respects it more and more in the pursuit of idealism to get shit done, right? It really, really matters. No, the, the, one, of, one of the themes in the book that I borrow from Obama really, actually out of a, a little bit of a testy exchange I had with him where I was pushing him to go further on an issue. And he's like, Sam, you know, better is good. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Better is a, often a hell of a lot harder than worse. <laughs> right. And, you know, we had this exchange before recent political events, before the 2016 election, et cetera. And, uh, but it's kind of deep. And I, I think that's mm -hmm. part of, so yes, it's on result. It's a results orientation, but of course everybody assumes they, they themselves are pursuing results, but it's also, knowing what to hold out or getting a better instinct anyway for what to hold out for, mm -hmm. when to put your foot down, when to be prepared to make a compromise that you might have from the outside thought of as a compromise too far. And that's part of the grittiness in a way of lived idealism is just mm -hmm. getting that experience 
of making things work as well as they can work in that moment. And right. to the outside, that to the old Samantha, you know, that can look like a sellout here or there. But hopefully, as I think where the sellouts occur is when you rationalize your way into forgetting what you were for in the first place. Well said. I actually think the way station approach or the mm-hmm. pocket what you can because it might disappear tomorrow or get worse tomorrow – uh, that that is certainly what I got better at over the life of my of my time in government. Well, and you you have another quote between nothing and bombs, right? <laughs> okay. So between those two polarities, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of shit to do, and as you were showing. All right, so back to our our sort of spine narrative here, otherwise known as your life, right? <laughs> so we're now we're now well into your professional life. We're steaming forward. You're a key advisor for. Obama's first presidential campaign, and with a Pulitzer already under your belt, you're in London doing a few days of book tour. You're jet lagged like hell. Okay, it's for your second book, and you're about to head to Ireland, bathed in glory. I mean, you're now really somebody, and you're going to go home. And this is the scene set for the chapter in your book called "Monster." There are two chapters in the book that I I find to be the sort of rosebuds in a way, of the whole thing. Monster and another one we're going to get to in a moment called Toussaint, okay, Uh, a little later on. But this is Monster. So would you just tell us, and a little, not to drag you through this, but sort of bare bones, what happens at this point from, you know, you're on your book tour, and how do these few weeks in your life change you? Yeah, well, it, it really is um, a kind of Icarus story. <laughs> so, uh, and as I was writing that chapter, I definitely went back to the story to immerse, re-immerse myself in the, the details of that. But I was flying so close to the sun that not only was I a senior foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama, but when I arrived in Dublin Airport, having done a few days of book tour in the United Kingdom, I received a text message from Bono inviting me to go out for a drink. And much as I'd like to say that that was a regular occurrence, uh, that was definitely the first time that that had ever happened. It was happened. still it was a big really, deal. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that was definitely the first time. <laughs> so, but as I was having a drink with Bono for the first time, but he was, of course, interested in me. I, I, yes, I was Irish. And yes, I cared about things that he cared about. But I was so working so closely with Barack Obama. And he was very interested mm-hmm. in Barack Obama. But as I was sitting with Bono in, in just one of those moments that you can't script, Obama campaign called me to tell me, to read me portions of an interview that I had allegedly given with a British reporter for the newspaper, The Scotsman, in which I referred to Hillary Clinton as a monster. I said other things as well, actually, that I think were even more offensive. And when this was first read to me, I just said, oh, it's just, that just didn't happen. There's no way. I don't think any of those things. And so there's no way I would have said those things. So demand a retraction. That's just British tabloid nonsense. And so then Bono and Brian Eno, here I am name dropping Brian Eno, <laughs> who was also there at the drink. It was Brian actually who who was just like, Are you sure? Are you sure you didn't? So I was like, How could I have said it? Like I, I you know, yes, we're in a, a dogfight here in this primary election between Hillary and Obama, but it's Hillary. Like, look what she's done for right. women, for girls, for me. She's always been so gracious to me. And I never would have said that. He's like, you're sure, you're sure. And then I like through the cobwebs of my brain and like my Jack Daniels that I'd been drinking that, that evening, you know, I'm thinking back and I'm like, well, I did get that call from Austin, my friend on the campaign. And he did tell me that her campaign had taken out attack ads against him because he had been caught up in some, yeah. he had been caught on t- saying something himself. And I was really irritated by that. And I was with a reporter at that time. And so I went back to up to my room and I checked the schedule. And I was like, oh, right when that call came, it was, that was the Scotsman. Maybe I just came back in and I just vented like I would at Yankee Stadium yeah. about the umpires or, you know, and, and what was so, it remains so surreal for me is, you know, especially if you're kind of a control freak and self-aware, the idea that words can come out of your mouth that you then would not actually be able to recognize. Yes. And it shows you like when you're, when you lose your temper with your, and your jet lagged, loved one and you're, 
And I, but it was like yeah. as unthinkable to me that I had said those things than that I had been speaking in Swahili the day before, which I don't speak. You know, like it was so, and yet I called the reporter. She played mm-hmm. me the tape. She had used a little creative license with ellipses and stuff to patch some things together. But by and large, I had said crazy stuff. And, and that was that. And now you're at the edge of a storm that you've never been involved in no. like that, which is it's the Obama campaign, which you are in heart and soul in you're I mean, it's it's everything you're doing. And suddenly there's going to be this terrible price to pay. One of the things I so appreciate about that chapter and why I think it's so important in the education, as it were, the book and the, the real thing is that at the same time, it becomes a vessel, this traumatic experience. And it was traumatic. I mean, there's no question for a person like you with your integrity and your ideals. And But you've been dating Cass Sunstein, right? Another Obama friend and advisor. And all your life, you had been extremely protective of yourself emotionally. This, of course, goes back to the beginning of our conversation about your father and all sorts of things. And Cass is on his way. He doesn't know that this has happened. His plane has already taken off. And so by the time he arrives in Ireland, this trauma has already landed on you. You probably would have told him not to come, but it's also at a crucial moment in your relationship with him, as in, is this going to have a future or not? And the way you describe those next days, including giving this brutal, <laughs> having to give a brutal lecture, right, uh, in a green hoodie, Uh, in front of hundreds of people and dealing with the press is incredibly touching. But it also shows to me an extraordinary moment in which the degree of your self-awareness takes one of those leaps that happen not that often in life to a point where you're able to understand something that's much bigger than a moment about your past and your present and that you're going to need to learn to let someone take care of you to live in a world that is this tough. Yeah, I mean, well, very well said. I I think that first, especially for the writers who listen to this podcast, you know, for a writer to join a team can be very hard because Mm -hmm. we're so used to doing things our own way and being by ourselves. But there are times when it happens, it's like sunlight and and oxygen, you know, and, and that's was that experience for me was taking the things that I'd written about and cared about and then being part of this team and this community on the Obama campaign. And we were insurgents and underdogs. And so all my sports love of underdogs, it got, you know, enshrined <laughs> in this other experience. And then suddenly in an instant, it was gone. And I had to resign the campaign because I'd done this stupid thing. And my absolute instinct in that circumstance, not that I'd ever become a global scandal before, but anything (laughs) analogous, even a junior varsity version of that would have been to push away anybody near me and deal with it on my own. And Cass, who flew over, not knowing, as you said, that this had happened, just insisted on, and I, you know, again, sounds so melodramatic now, but I mean, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't, I felt so guilty that Hillary could think that I thought this about her. I felt so worried that that in this neck and neck race that I was going to cost the narcissism, by the way, of villainy. It goes it goes with the territory, I think. My, my, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to cost Obama the nomination. <laughs> Nothing you told me was going to convince me otherwise. So when, when he won the Wyoming caucus, you know, by like 500 votes to three 320 for all the Democrats in Wyoming, you know, I just started bawling, you know, with relief. And, and, uh, so, but there was Cass and I did try to push him away, even if I was stuck with him physically, cause he was in my hotel room having come, <laughs> come to Ireland, but I certainly wanted nothing to do with him, but he just would not go away. And he just took care of me and almost spoon feeding me, you know, in those days, or, you know, I was, I, and then when we went back to America, I was so sure that everybody, there's this, and he's a, you know, an expert on behavioral science. So he alerted me to this concept, the spotlight effect, yes. where you think that everyone's thinking about you, even when they're thinking about themselves, which is what most people are doing at most times. And so he, so I'd say, no, Cass, we can't get on that airplane. Like everybody, it's go, we might be, we were flying to Chicago, which is where he was from, where all the Obama people would be. And they'll be so mad at me because I jeopardized the Obama campaign. And he's like, nobody is thinking about you. 
I said, if we get on the plane, I won't be able to use the restroom because I won't want to get up. And he's like, I'll set you a screen, you know, just follow me. Like I have your back or I have your front or, and sure enough, he just out of almost despondency, I was in a borderline, you know, kind of catatonic mm-hmm. state. And I had nothing. The most important thing is I had nothing on my schedule mm-hmm. for the first time in my life. So I filled the gaps and the voids and the holes and slayed the shadows and the demons by moving forward at all times. And suddenly nothing except chaos in my life. And, you know, something snapped in me, whatever those defenses were, they just melted away. And he took full advantage of my vulnerability and proposed marriage. We'd only been dating five minutes practically before this happened. Probably Uh, another sports metaphor in there. Yeah, I guess so. But uh, but I but I I heard myself agreeing. You know, having never even come close to a a proper long term adult relationship before. So you know, I did get swept away. And a few months later, you were back where Obama had intended you to be, which was back with the campaign. And so it is. That's one moment, and then the next one, ten years later, in I would say an equally powerful and beautifully evoked chapter. It's called Toussaint. And uh, which is the name of someone. You're the UN ambassador now to the United Nations. I mean, it's the job in some ways that you have dreamed about always. And you take it upon yourself to initiate a very dangerous trip for you and your staff to Cameroon, to Chad, Nigeria, to meet people at the front lines of the fight against the brutal terrorist organization Boko Haram specifically to help draw attention to the struggles of the 300 schoolgirls who had been taken by them. But during the trip, in a way that no one could have ever foreseen, something terrible happens. So again, I'm not trying to drag you through all the traumas, but again, I think because the trip had its value, and again, the awareness of all these things happening at once is so much now a part of the knowledge you carry, the wisdom you carry, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that time now looking back and what you make of it. Yeah. So, I mean, first, I did use the trip being a a cabinet member to shake free money in order to provide Mm -hmm. humanitarian assistance to people. You did. You got $168 million. I think you got them to give up. Indeed. In in Nigeria, Cameroon and, and Chad. And so that was the kind of it just is a quirk of government that often the way you can extract resources from the system is to you, you put yourself out there and it becomes a so-called trip deliverable. And you'll see this with any senior official. So I did that and I, I brought journalists in the hopes that they also would, would draw attention to this forgotten population, which had generated such headlines and support in the early days. But now the parents of these girls were languishing, being ignored, particularly by the Nigerian government. And so that was the point of it. It wasn't, we weren't, you know, it wasn't a liberation mission and and we weren't going to change the world overnight, but it was to mitigate some of the starvation risk in Boko Haram areas and to make those parents know that we were still doing everything we could to support them and to try to find the the girls who'd gone missing and, and were still with Boko Haram. And what happened as we were traveling in northern Cameroon is that the Cameroonian government, because of the Boko Haram threat in the area, had basically put in place a very large armored convoy because the last thing they wanted was a senior U.S. official, of course, and and their delegation to get struck. And in so doing, they closed off the roads and it was a very... You know, one of those scenes that when I was a journalist, I couldn't stand, you know, where the U.S. convoy with the American flag is kind of going and then the people are off on the side and there's not a lot of interaction. But it was a very dangerous area. But I had, you know, raised concerns about it and those concerns had been met with, well, what do you want to do to take more risk and endanger your Mm -hmm. staff? And the answer, no, of course. So we did it and we thought that that security convoy was necessary given what we were trying to achieve. But one of the things that happened is that a little boy uh, named Toussaint basically looking at one of the helicopters that was escorting the armored convoy on the ground, the little boy in looking up at the helicopter lost sight of where he was and basically ran into the convoy. And one of the vehicles in the convoy that I was traveling in hit the boy and the boy died a little bit later, but was was really badly hit and... and, um, And I 
was in the a different part of the convoy and had no awareness of this because this happened behind me. And so we made our way to the our destination and I was preparing for my meetings with the officials who were rounding people up with no due process. And I was preparing to deliver my stern talking points. And then my staff members pulled me aside. And, and th- these were the guys who'd actually been in the car that hit the young boy. And, and one of them had just adopted a child and I just, both of them felt, you can imagine, I mean, those images mm-hmm. will never escape them. And so for me, it was a story of what had already happened. And I said, well, did you guys stop? Did you? And they said, we, we the security wouldn't allow us to stop. The ambulance stopped and the ambulance took care of the boy. And at that point, we didn't know if the boy had survived. But I said, we got to go back. Like Now we've got to go right now and and meet with the, to see how the boy's doing and then, and then meet with the parents. And so... They went and secured the area. Uh, We ended up going back. By the time we went back, the boy had uh, already been pronounced to have passed away and and, or to have been killed. And and so walking into that house, knowing that that boy would be alive to this day, had we not made this choice to go and try to bring some support to these families and, and how to think about that. I mean, you asked the question in the right way. I, even to this day, I don't really know how to think about it. I mean, truthfully, if you asked me if I could go back in time and not do the trip and not bring the 168 million that might've saved this number of people, I would not do the trip. <laughs> There's no really? question. I would mm-hmm. not, do, yeah. I, I would not do the trip because even just for, yeah, just to do the, just, so I one understand. Life, you know, it's it's the universe in a grain of sand. I mean, it's one one family right. yeah. irrevocably altered. So the the rest is just more abstract on the on the other side of the of the ledger. And, but yeah, and it's that it's the fact of that abstraction on the other side of the ledger. And yet yeah. at the same time, you inhabit a world now, a world of of soft and hard powers, if you will, where however abstract that is, you do understand better than most. I think how that can change things and save thousands of lives, if not even more, on the bigger picture, and that a trip like you made can bring money that then saves lives uh, and bring attention from a power like the United States, which, of course, still is singular mm. in its in its effect. The thing about that chapter that really still strikes me, I, it's sort of, it, I find the scope and resonance, and it, it has a metaphorical power about what we're trying to do and the cost also of what we're trying to do and breaking eggs and all sorts of things. Like there's nothing that gets done that has no cost. I think that's right. I think what what I struggled with and continue to grapple with is that is the impression that most people have of American foreign policy is even when we're trying to do the right thing, we manage to go and screw everything up. Even when we met, we were probably, you know, saving, uh, you know, or at least improving the lives of hundreds or thousands of, of young boys. Look, there's America again, uh, the elephant in the China shop and, you know, this heartbreak uh, wrought by an American visit on this family, on this boy and, and all who loved him. And and I think what I want to actually convey in the book and which I, I, I hope I succeed in conveying is it's not only that story. You're, you're right, right, John, that that is almost paradigmatic. But what is also true is that every day we are getting political prisoners out of jail yes. and just in steady state providing humanitarian assistance or being the only country who leads in sanctioning generals who stage a coup in Myanmar. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in that, what you mentioned earlier, between doing nothing and sending in the Marines, yes. just that range of yep. tools, many of which are deployed very creatively, not always quickly enough and not always mm-hmm. thoughtfully enough for sure. But so I do, you know, one of the lessons of the education idealist is, as I put it, I think somewhere in the book, which is, it is true that the road to hell is paved to good intentions. But doing nothing, thinking that you can do, do nothing about the hardest problems in the world is a quick shortcut to the same destination. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so in other words, that there is an embrace of trying and learning and growing and being far more curious sometimes than I think policymakers are about mm-hmm. what the effects are of what you're doing, including the perverse effects. But I also want to kind of preserve space to say there actually are clean wins. Like America really 
at its best, and again, not always, but really, you know, can do good and is generous in the support that it offers people, even when there's no nexus to our national mm-hmm. interest. I think we're going to see this, John, and here there is a nexus, but on COVID and as Biden ramps up, you know, for example, in you know, making sure that tests and, and diagnostics yeah. and PPE and ultimately vaccines, but I think in the near term and not in the on the distant horizon, you know, that the United States is, again, the engine for catalyzing support to vulnerable people who just right. by accident of their birth don't have access to Pfizer and Moderna in their own neighborhood. I was going to ask you about that because you played a deeply involved role in the Obama administration's successful intervention in West Africa, you know, stem the spread of Ebola. It really was very successful. It's a success for which, frankly, you know, I think we can say that the administration still hasn't received necessarily the credit it deserved. But you now, here you are back at the table, touch wood, and it is a chance to take what all that know-how and the sense of what America can do well. So you are optimistic in that sense, would you say? I don't want to put a word in your mouth. I am optimistic. I mean, let's stipulate that I think President Trump exposed the importance, the urgency of never taking for granted American support for international engagement. I think there was too much complacency among those of us who believe that U.S. leadership is both good for our values and good for our our country and our people. And so we have to make that case. But I think that out of necessity, because of the spread of variants, because of the economic interconnectedness and the need in order for our economy to fully recover for economies elsewhere to not be on lockdown and to be re- coming out of the virus as well. I mean, they're, they're just the our interconnectedness, which some would deny or deny the implications of, just means that this is part and parcel of being for ourselves. At the same time, I think in the administration that I hope to join, there is also just an ethic of believing that when you have the resources to support countries that don't come from the same place of privilege that you do, it's not only in your interest, but it's the right thing to do. And Ebola was both, right? It was, we do not want to see these three countries in West Africa ravaged by Ebola, nor do we want to see Ebola spread and begin to harm our own people. Now we've already lived the harm, but harm's yet to be uncovered lie ahead if we don't get our act together and help organize the world. And even with China's rise, the one thing that remains undoubtedly true, I mean, an axiom of this part of the 21st century, at least, is without American leadership catalyzing those global coalitions, it just doesn't happen. And without American leadership of other countries, we then could get in a situation which none of us want, which is us bearing the burden, a much heavier burden than we need to, because the the key with international cooperation is to get every country to do its fair share and, and to coordinate among us. And that I think the American people really believe wholeheartedly, but by ducking out of international institutions and global cooperation, actually there ends up being more pressure on our resources than there would otherwise be. So I have one last question. You've been incredibly uh, generous with your time, but coming back to writing again, and I just want to ask you, you know, how the act and practice of your writing balances with your, quote, other <laughs> career in the Obama administration and soon Touchwood in the Biden administration, how starting out as a journalist, journalist who understands the importance of storytelling and facts has impacted the way you operate in your high-profile roles in government? It's a great question. I mean, first of all, writing is my way of making sense of what's happening to me at any given time. So my journal keeping was my way of checking in with my conscience. We talked earlier about better is good and the risk of rationalization. I mean, you can have friends who keep you honest, parents, loved ones who keep you honest, hopefully a spouse or partner that keeps you honest. But if I think writing is a way to really air concerns that one might even feel, you know, aren't ready for prime time, aren't ready to be to get broader distribution. And so so writing just that and that need to express and to explore 
that when you're in roles where every word you say may be scrutinized, you may have just less flexibility there. So just having that outlet, I think, is incredibly important. I think as a diplomat, the part of journalism that I brought to that role and will bring to USAID if I get there is stepping into the shoes of other people, which to be a great writer like you uh, in writing fiction is so absolutely critical. I mean, to get even if it's in your imagination to get to know and build a character in all of their complexity. So it's not, I think in diplomacy too often, there's a, this person is the representative of their country and they come with these talking points, but to try to get behind that and say, where do you come from? And how did you end up getting involved in diplomacy? And how has climate change affected the village where you grew up in? And, you know, how many girls in your family have gone to school and, and really to build out that portrait. And then you have a negotiation with someone whose values, whose mattering map you can really connect with. And then lastly, and this relates, I think, to no matter what I do, but as a diplomat, storytelling, as you mentioned, as a way of trying to break through the kind of positional rhetorical warfare or the ideology that can keep us apart to try to find that way of piercing really it amounts to the defenses of a colleague from another country. When I would travel to the field, let's say I go to the Syrian border and talk to refugees from Syria, there, there's the facts and the numbers and the, and the horrors that everybody knows about. And then there's one boy whose dad carried him for four days to try to get surgery on his arm and the fact that he couldn't get medevac out. And then when you're trying to secure that medevac for someone else to be able to bring those personal details to light. And I think it gets to what we have to do as a country in selling what we're doing internationally and what we're doing domestically, which is we have to tell a better story. We have to remember the importance of bringing our audiences along in the way that you as a novelist do and as a writer do. And, and I, as a writer, I'm always thinking, is my editor going to nix this in the first instance? Are they even going to take this story? Like, have I even framed it in a way that's appealing? And then if I've got someone, hook somebody with my lead, am I going to keep them? Well, we lost the thread a little bit on, are we keeping our audience here? Yeah. Domestically. And I don't want to overread the Trump effect, but certainly it was a wake up call in needing to tell a story about why what we do internationally matters for Americans in, in a whole range of ways. And caring about the audience. And really care, never losing sight. And, and our audience is so diverse, just as our audience as writers is really diverse. So yes. different yeah. frames and messages work in, in different places and never losing sight of that. But there are some universals that I think can resonate broadly. But I think we were not attentive enough to that. And so I, I bring that sensibility back now to government. That's a perfect place for us to end. We sort of have come full circle. And I just, I want to wish you, first of all, you don't need the luck. I have all good expectations that um, we're going to see you in your position soon. But I know it. there's a lot going on as you work through confirmation. But it's wonderful to see you back helping where you can help everybody at a time when, when that help is so badly needed. And I hope when your schedule ever allows it, uh, you'll come back to the Sun Valley Writers Conference, too. So you and Cass and, and, the, and the kids. I can't wait to get out there. It's on my bucket list, I promise, John. And thank you for doing this. <laughs> Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes, as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. Thank you.